Good evening. In June 1685, one of the most unlikely invasion forces in English history landed at Lyme Regis in Dorset. Only 83 strong, this band of loyal Protestants were led by Charles II's eldest and favourite illegitimate son, James Scott, Duke of Monmouth. Their aim was to unseat James II, who had acceded to the throne that year on the death of King Charles. James II was, of course, a Roman Catholic, and his accession had been steadily opposed by a section of the English political classes for a decade or more. Well, within a week, some 4,000 had joined Monmouth under his blue banners, which were emblazoned with the slogan, for God, freedom, and religion. And he was declared king in the marketplace at Taunton on Midsummer's Day. But at this point, his luck ran out. He had hoped to advance much further than what this map shows here. And as he went, build up his army. But just outside Bridgewater in Somerset, his poorly trained armed force was wiped out at Sedgemoor by a professionally trained royal army under James II. It was a last set-piece battle fought on English soil. Monmouth himself was captured, taken to London, and nine days later, he lost his head on Tower Hill. If in one of the great what-ifs of English history, Monmouth had bided his time, he would have certainly been at King William III's side in 1688, and in the reign of William and Mary, would have undoubtedly been the leading aristocrat of his age. But that is not how things played out. Events, as they have happened, have obscured the significant achievements of the Duke, and in particular, the subject of tonight's lecture, his role in the development of architecture in England. Well, my lectures this year, for those of you who've been following them, have taken a look at four great aristocratic families and their estates. In my first lecture, we considered the Boleyns, a dynasty that rose in four generations from Norfolk gentry to produce an albeit short-lived Queen of England. This was a slide I showed you showing uh, the dynasty and the houses that they amassed. Their rise was uh, founded on money made from the city of London, but consolidated through a series of spectacular marriages that brought huge wealth and influence. What's interesting about the Boleyns is that until Anne became queen, none of them were great architectural patrons. And although they all extended, modified, and improved houses that they had bought or inherited, architecture was never one of the driving forces in their rise to power. The case of the Cecils, covered in my second lecture in this series, was entirely different. Without the blood to marry into great wealth, two brilliant men 
father and son systematic, systematically invested the fruits of royal service into land. They bought, built, amassed, and consolidated. On the strength of their many offices, reinforced by palpable royal favour, they borrowed to buy still more. Both William and Robert Cecil looked to the future. They were dynasty building, creating houses and estates that have actually endured for 400 years. Their approach to building was different too. The Berlins were eager to stress their ancient lineage. Here's uh, Hever Castle, um, which they didn't modernise. They liked the fact that it was a medieval uh, residence. Owing, owning property was a dynastic affirmation. They wanted their houses to look old. Any modernisation was carefully judged to bring comforts within a pre-existing architecture. But the Cecils came from much more humble stock, a fact that their opponents and detractors were very keen to point out. The family was out to establish itself, not only through architecture, but through the totality of an estate with a capital mansion at its heart. Those mansions made references to the feudal obligations of a landowner, and you see the Great Hall at Burley here, but were essentially modern houses built by new men. What ties the Berlins and the Cecils together is their faith in the value of landed estates and property to secure the long-term security of their families and achieve upward social mobility. What separates them were the methods they used to achieve that aim. Today, we're going to look at the third family, the Scots, Dukes of Monmouth and Buccleuch. The Duke of Monmouth's rise and fall took place against an architectural background of great importance. As we will see this evening, in the 1670s and 80s, as the notion of political parties was born, so was a new way of deploying building in the service of policy, uh, politics and uh, family. Well, James, Duke of Monmouth, and you see this gorgeous uh, picture of him here in the Royal Collection, was, until very recently, regarded as a flimsy restoration fop whose life was given over to gambling, sex, horses, and fighting. But Dr Anna Kay's brilliant 2016 biography, The Last Royal Rebel, has demolished this picture of a dilettante and rake and replaced it with that of an engaged and principled politician and a capable and original administrator. What I'm going to say this evening only reinforces that picture. Well, he was born in 1649 in Rotterdam uh, to one of Charles II's mistresses, Lucy Walter. After rather an over-adventurous uh, childhood in the company of his unreliable and dissolute mother, Charles II kidnapped the boy in 1657 and had him sent to Paris where he took the surname of his guardian, Lord Crofts. 
1662, Charles II, secure on his throne in England, ordered James Crofts, as he then was, to London. One of Charles II's most admirable and charming traits was the very strong affection that he had for his children. And although he hadn't seen much of his 13-year-old son up until this point, he absolutely fell for his charm, his good looks, and his quick wit. Very soon, James was moved into Whitehall Palace, which you see here. And he was given lodgings um, in the ground floor of this building here. This is the king's uh, private lodging, uh, the king's backstairs, which led directly up to his bedroom, uh, linked with uh, James's uh, lodgings uh, on the ground floor. So he was given uh, accommodation in the most privileged position in the whole of uh, Whitehall. Well, the very high favour in which James was held quickly came to the notice of Margaret Leslie, Countess of Weems. Her daughter, Anne, who you see here, Countess of Buccleuch, was the heir of the richest family in Scotland. And Margaret needed to see this young girl married to a man who would protect her from the designs of the rapacious earls of Tweedale, to whom the family estates would fall if her daughter Anne were to die without issue. She had the brilliant idea of offering this young girl, Anne, to Charles II as a bride for James Crofts. Anne was only 11, but she was the heir to an annual income of £10,000 a year. The marriage was quickly agreed to in principle, and in February 1663, James became the Duke of Monmouth and Earl of Doncaster, and was given precedence over all non-royal dukes. And on the 23rd of April, he was installed as a Knight of the Garter. Just three days earlier, he had married Anne. He took her family name of Scott and at the same time became Duke of Buccleuch and Earl of Dalkeith. Given the fact that Anne was too young to marry, for the time being, they were to live apart. Lady Weems and Charles II must have been mutually delighted. One secured the finances of his son forever without investing a single penny, and the other married into the royal family, securing the fortunes of her own dynasty. Whitehall was no place for a 12-year-old girl, and in March 1664, at the cost of £7,000, Charles II bought Anne and James a house at Chiswick, a safe 10 miles distance from Whitehall. Now, Chiswick House today is famous for this building, built by the Earl of Burlington, uh, the uh, Palladian Villa, which was actually only a wing of this building, which is the Jacobean house that Charles II bought for uh, James and Anne. These uh, stables um, are later, um, but this is the house, and this is the, these are the grounds which the house in Chiswick uh, occupied. Um, <clears throat> the 
house had been built by one of James I's grooms of the bedchamber, John Ashburnham, in the 1620s. So it was a sort of typical Jacobean house. It was very large. It had 33 hearths, 33 chimneys. And you can see it was a courtyard house with a courtyard in the middle, a tower at the back, and looking over the river, which is down here at the bottom of the of the slide. Um, from March 1664 uh, until February 1665, when her marriage was finally consummated, it was Anne Buccleuch's official home. Well, while Chiswick House was being prepared for Anne, the king turned his attention to his son. In the space of just three months, James had acquired two dukedoms, married the richest woman in Scotland, and had been declared the country's leading aristocrat. While his uh, lodgings at Whitehall had put him in immensely a privileged position, they were now not reflective of this extraordinary status. The surveyor of the king's works, Sir John Denham, was ordered to set up suitable lodgings for the duke and uh, duchess uh, in what was known as the cockpit, now, this is the 1670 plan of Whitehall Palace. These are the royal lodgings. Here's the banqueting house, which still survives today. And all these buildings here on the west side of Whitehall, um, formerly Henry VIII's recreation centre, were known as the cockpit, after a cockpit which was here. It contained various tennis courts, um, a bowling alley, and other recreational um, facilities. And uh, the largest tennis court, a covered tennis court, for what we call real tennis today, which is this building here, uh, was converted into a lodging for the Duke and Duchess. And here we see an identical uh, tennis court um, at Hampton Court, built in the 1530s, like the one in the cockpit. And uh, in um, 1670, this tennis court was converted into lodgings for the Duke of York. And the conversion that happened at Hampton Court is identical to that which took place at Whitehall for the Duke of Monmouth. Uh, essentially, two floors were put in, uh, uh, modern windows were inserted, and as you can see, it made a large and handsome residence. And this uh, view of Whitehall Palace in the 1690s, again, shows the banqueting house here, but here is that tennis court which was uh, converted uh, by um, uh, Sir John Denham for uh, the Duke and Duchess of Monmouth. And remarkably, the rooms uh, in it survived unaltered into the 19th century. And this is a drawing of uh, the Board of Trade in 1821. And there is no hint that this room is in a Tudor tennis court. As you can see, this very elaborate uh, ceiling, which was inserted um, in the early 1660s, and Sir John Soane, the architect responsible, uh, undertook this beautiful drawing of it, and you can see uh, the way that the initials um, James and Anne um, and B for Buccleuch and M for Monmouth. Um, and here you see one of the other ceilings in the, an adjacent room, and still in the Sir John Soane's museum today, a plaster squeeze of that monogram that was on the ceiling. These rooms were done up 
in the finest taste and furnished with items from the royal wardrobe to match. Monmouth's uh, tally of privileges was notched up further in February 1665 when the king granted him an annual pension of £6,000 a year and in 1667 an additional allowance of 4,000 years was granted primarily to cover the cost of entertaining the king to suppers in his lodgings in the cockpit. And the gold kept on coming. The royal allowance was raised by £2,000 a year in 1672, and in 1667, to cover the cost of their three children, another 1,600 was added each year. If you then look at other one-off gifts, including the £5,000 given to celebrate the Duchess's uh, birth in 1670, the the, the birth of a child to the Duchess in 1672, uh, one-off gifts amounted to a staggering £43,000 in 1672 to 1673 alone. So what do we know about this incredibly wealthy, well-connected, and exceedingly glamorous young couple. A selection of their account books survive and make it clear that they did not stint in the enjoyment of their position. They were hugely extravagant. In 1666, their servants alone cost them three and a half thousand pounds a year. Their stables cost £1,135 a year. Their clothes budget was meant to be £1,200 a year, but in 1671, Anne blew the entire sum on a single pair of diamond earrings. But what about architecture? Well, the young couple had Chiswick, but in 1665, Anne who we must remember was only 14 years old at this point, was invited to visit Moore Park in Rickmansworth in Hertfordshire. This country house belonged to the Duke of Ormond, one of Charles II's closest allies, who had also been given lodgings in the cockpit and were the neighbours of the Monmouths at Whitehall. Anne, uh, seeing Moore Park, absolutely loved it and immediately started coveting the house. By today's standards, this was pretty precocious, and it must be wondered what drew this 14-year-old to uh, the property. The house there was very similar to Chiswick. It had been built in 1614 to 20 by the Earl and Countess of Bedford, and there can't have been much advantage in swapping one Jacobean mansion for another. And so it must have been Moore Park's position, and in particular, its gardens, that attracted her. The Bedfords had, in fact, laid out a famous garden there that was described by Sir William Temple in 1685 as the sweetest place I had, have ever seen in my life, either before or or since, at home, or abroad. 
1663, when the uh, uh, Duke of Ormond had originally bought it, Lord Clarendon said, the beauty of this place depends entirely on its gardens. And what you see here on the screen um, is a conjectural reconstruction published in Country Life showing what the gardens may well have been like when uh, it was uh, coveted by Anne, Duchess of Monmouth. The house is up here at the top, you can't see it, but you can see these remarkable gardens coming down in terraces uh, with uh, ponds and statues and parterres, um, a, a, beautiful, um, a beautiful place. Well, <clears throat> Charles II, ever indulgent to his son, bought uh, this house from the Duke of Ormond, furniture and all the entire contents with it for the enormous sum of £13,200 in 1670. The house at Chiswick had been sold two years previously, and uh, uh, the couple, uh, absolutely glued to the side of the king at Whitehall, um, had really rarely um, used it. Soon, they added another property to their portfolio. In 1674, Monmouth was appointed to one of the three great court offices, the Master of the Horse. This very uh, significant role saw him with the major responsibility for overseeing the king's and the court's uh, transport logistics, um, all the horses and carriages and carts and everything, and its headquarters was at Charing Cross in the Royal Mews, a vast complex of yards, stables, and coach houses that occupied the, uh, uh, the location of current Trafalgar Square. And here you see um, a plan of it. Um, this is more or less where the, Royal, uh, where the National Gallery is up here. You see the great uh, courtyards. And what came with the, uh, the, the post of Master of the Horse was a house here, um, quite a large house, um, on a, a lane called Hedge Lane, now Whitworth Street, um, and it had 11 rooms on this floor and presumably another um, 11 rooms on the floor um, above. This house um, had been built in 1660 um, and had been purchased by the king uh, the following year um, and remained the uh, official residence of the master of the horse. Now, Sadly, we have no um, image of it, but uh, the residence very quickly got a makeover and was furnished with the finest furnishings that money could buy. And here, the Duke kept his 30 horses, his coaches, and his yellow liveried footmen who ran alongside his coach wherever he went. Now, the news that James, Duke of York, Charles II's brother and the heir to the throne, had converted to Catholicism, this news that broke in 1673, was a turning point in the reign of Charles II, triggering huge controversy in a vehemently anti-Catholic country not long out of religious revolution. Disquiet turned into hysteria by the discovery of a Catholic plot 
against the king, the so-called popish plot. The Duke of York was implicated in this entirely fictional conspiracy by the discovery of some incriminating letters held by one of his chaplains. This, and I quote a contemporary newsletter, made as much noise in and about London and indeed all over the nation as if the very cabinet of hell had been laid open. A movement to have the Duke of York removed from the succession, um, which had already begun, now began to gather momentum. And the streets of London filled with angry crowds. There were Pope-burning processions, and you see one of those um, here on this uh, uh, contemporary uh, print. And the call amongst the populace on the street was for Monmouth to be made his father's successor. Now, London, and in particular Whitehall, had been the domain of the court, the primary residence of the king since the Restoration. But the exclusion crisis, as it was called, the crisis to exclude James from the throne, changed all that. The strength of feeling about the prospect of a Catholic sovereign was enormous, and it gave birth to political parties. The Whigs, who were all for changing the succession to keep the Catholic out, and the Tories, first of, amongst whom was the king, was, uh, were for standing up for the hereditary principle, come what may. The Whigs, as you may imagine, settled on the Duke of Monmouth, the Protestant Duke, as their figurehead, as he alone was a credible alternative heir to Charles II. Monmouth never publicly put himself forward as a potential king, but he did want to exclude uh, the Duke of York from the throne, and he probably believed that the throne should go to the Duke's daughter, uh, Princess Mary, who of course had married William of Orange, um, uh, becoming William and Mary eventually um, on the, um, uh, in 1688. Well, we have to remember that it was Charles I's inability to hold and control London that was one of the triggers for the Civil War. And Charles II knew that he had to diffuse this febrile atmosphere on the streets that was being stoked by the Whig opposition. So, in 1674, when he realised that he would never persuade his brother to abandon Catholicism, the king made a sudden and dramatic change to the way the court operated. For several months each summer, he announced, the entire court would decamp from London to Windsor Castle, which had never before done, and massive building works were set in train to modernise the castle to make it suitable. And you see uh, on this slide here, an image of part of that spectacular remodelling of Windsor Castle undertaken by the royal architect Hugh May. Uh, this is the, uh, the, the royal um, chapel. But not only that, but uh, the king decided uh, in the early 1680s to go one stage further 
and start the construction of a huge new palace built from scratch in a loyal town, Winchester. Uh, and here it is, uh, the palace begun by Charles II, designed by Christopher Wren, which I believe he intended essentially to move the headquarters of the monarchy to, to avoid this uh, a very difficult um, atmosphere caused by the exclusion crisis in London. Well, in order to calm things down politically, Charles was also forced to invite the Whigs, or some Whigs, into the Privy Council. But in the autumn of 1679, Charles II effectively lost patience with everybody. He abandoned the Coalition Council, he expelled the Duke of Monmouth from court, he expelled the Duke of York from court, and the opposition leaders went with them. Now, up until this point, the Duke had been a creature of the court, principally residing in his lavish apartment um, in Whitehall. But now, Monmouth was banned from entering the precincts of the royal palace. And while Duchess Anne and their children remained at the cockpit, Monmouth had to live in his official residence in Hedge Lane. But meanwhile, the Duke and Duchess commissioned uh, Hugh May, uh, the controller of the Royal Office of Works, the man who was in charge of the works at Windsor, to rebuild the Jacobean house at Moor Park. Uh, the Monmouths not only secured the services of May as architect, but the entire royal team from Windsor, from the joiners to the royal painter Antonio Verrio, who had painted the inside of this chapel, uh, and the carver Grinling Gibbons. They all uh, went to Moor Park to work for the Duke. Now, as far as we can tell, uh, the uh, core of the Jacobean house at Moor Park was retained. I say this because, as I will explain in a moment, uh, the new house was a rather unusual plan. But uh, what you see here on the screen is Moor Park as it is today. It's the headquarters of a golf club. But uh, on the bottom right, you see the uh, very clever reconstruction of its original appearance undertaken by Paul Drury, Sally Jeffrey, and Paul Wrightson. Uh, they have managed to uh, determine the original uh, uh, appearance because within the 18th century house you see here, the original house is encased. As you see, the Duke's house was of brick. 1.4 million bricks were fired in the park at Moor Park. Um, and the house, which seems perhaps very plain to our eyes and perhaps not at all what we would expect from this uh, very uh, a fashionable couple, this celebrity uh, couple, it looks perhaps rather plain and austere. But this was the fashion. These neat brick houses, beautifully proportioned but austere, were what everyone of taste, from the king downwards 
actually wanted. In fact, at Hampton Court, Charles II built for himself exactly such a building, probably also by Hugh May. In fact, Moore Park was described by one contemporary as one of the best pieces of brickwork in England. We have uh, a plan of the original house. And you'll see, rather unusually, it wasn't entered from the front, it was entered from the side into a great entrance hall, up uh, some more steps into a top-lit staircase, which rose up to the principal floor. Hugh May was a master of space and light, creating extraordinary staircases at Windsor Castle, and the staircase um, at Moore Park was similar. On the first floor, uh, when you got up there, uh, there were two suites. There was a common um, anteroom, large anteroom, which led to a withdrawing room and a bedroom and some closets. And on this side, another withdrawing room, a bedroom, and some more closets. And these presumably were um, his and her suites for the Duke and Duchess. But on the ground floor, off the entrance hall, was an anteroom leading to a spectacular stateroom, a bedchamber, and uh, some private closets uh, with direct access to the garden. And this undoubtedly was a state suite, a suite of rooms designed by the Duke and Duchess to entertain Charles II when they were eventually uh, readmitted to court and there was a reconciliation between uh, father and um, son. The most significant surviving room in this mansion is this room here. Uh, you see a photograph of it here. Uh, the walls uh, are, are later, but the ceiling which you see uh, is the ceiling that was painted by Verio for the Duke. The walls would have been hung um, in tapestry. Uh, the original joinery survives, richly carved uh, and gilded um, cornices, dados, panelling, uh, uh, um, undertaken by a team led by Grinling Gibbons um, himself. The original effect of this a state apartment would have been spectacular. And if you want to get a feeling of what it might have been like, go to Windsor Castle, to the King's Great Eating Room there. This room is an exact equivalent to Monmouth's uh, Great Chamber at Moore Park. Well, now we come to the most important part of this story. For although in 1679 the Monmouths started building what was unquestionably one of the most fashionable houses of its age, they never wanted to live in it. Their life was in London, and that is where they wanted to be. And so while work progressed at Moore Park, the Duke continued to live in Hedge Lane, which became the unofficial headquarters for the Whig op opposition to the Crown. Now, as you will know, and I have covered this in one of my previous lectures in some detail, one of the most dramatic effects of the Restoration on London was the birth of what we now call the West End, and in particular, the building of the streets and squares south of Piccadilly and north of St. James's Park. 
This area was developed very rapidly in the years after 1660, and during the 1670s and the 1680s, the development spread further to cover the area that we now know as Soho. The first new square was St. James's Square, and this was, of course, built at the gates of St. James's Palace. So here is St. James's Palace, here is St. James's Park, Whitehall is just here, and you can see the regular uh, buildings of St. James's Square just uh, round the corner from the front door of St. James's Palace. <clears throat> now, St. James's was the official residence of the Duke of York. He lived here with his wife, and at St. James's is the still surviving Roman Catholic chapel, and so uh, the house was not only the uh, a residence of the heir to the throne, the Roman Catholic heir to the throne, it also had a, an operating uh, Roman Catholic church at its uh, heart. And it should be no surprise, therefore, that with only one significant exception, all the houses around St. James's Square, and you see an early plan of it here, were occupied by supporters of the King and the Duke of York. In other words, it was occupied by Tories. This was the headquarters of the Tories in this square. In 1677, a successful London bricklayer, Richard Frith, leased a part of Soho Fields, the open ground north of Charing Cross, and he began to build 42 handsome brick houses, following the model established at St. James's Square. And in January 1680, the first of these houses was sold. So here it is. This is Soho Square, as we now call it, originally called um, uh, King's Square. Um, and here is uh, what is now um, Oxford Street. By 1683, 14 houses in the square had been completed and were occupied. And you can see from this engraving, the design was highly uniform. Most houses were three stories high and three bays wide, with sashes in flush frames and broken, scrolled, pedimented door cases. And actually, a couple of the houses survive. This is one of them. You get a very good impression of this very austere, plain, well-proportioned brick architecture that was so fashionable at the moment. And in the middle of the square, looking a bit worse for wear, is still the statue of Charles II erected at the time. Now, Frith, the builder of this square, had hit on a brilliant piece of salesmanship for he had acquired as its principal residence for the colossal single house on the southern side of the square, the glamorous figurehead of the opposition party, the Duke of Monmouth himself. So here is the square, looking from the other direction, and here is a huge house on this side, which Frith uh, managed to get the Duke of Monmouth um, to take. The lease was granted to Monmouth in February 1682, when he was at the height of his fame. It was an enormous plot. It was uh, 70 feet on the square, 
and it went back 280 feet at the rear with uh, space for huge stables uh, with their own frontage on Frith Street. The deal was a very, very good one for Monmouth. He acquired the property at the cost of only £400. The house was to be built by Frith and his associates uh, at their own cost over the following year, and several years later, the Duke was to reimburse them uh, the £6,500 that the building was to cost. The deal was secured on uh, Monmouth's promise to transfer to them uh, what remained of his lease on the stables um, on Hedge Lane um, by the Royal Mews. And again, uh, for this house, Monmouth House, uh, a crack team of royal craftsmen were taken on. The master joiner was Alexander Fort, the interior painter Robert Streeter, the king's own personal painter. Both of these people were already working at Moor Park. The square, as I've said, um, was commissioned King's Square with its statue uh, of Charles II in the middle. And uh, Monmouth was resident in his new house, not yet fully completed, just over a year later in the spring of 1683. What is remarkable, however, is who else had bought houses in King's Square? This is a plan taken from the Survey of London, um, and you can work out, and I don't have to worry about the writing here, but you can work out exactly who was living in each of these houses um, in the uh, years immediately after its construction. And what it shows is that out of the 14 inhabited houses in the new development, seven of them were owned by leading members of the Whig party. Among them were Colonel Rumsey and Lord de Grey, both of whom would sail with Monmouth on his fateful invasion. There was also Thomas Grey, 2nd Earl of Stamford, Thomas Thin, Lord Weymouth, and a fistful of other people. Just as St. James's Square was the bastion of the Tories, now this ultra-fashionable King's Square became the headquarters of the Whigs. The contract to build Monmouth's new house was signed on the 17th of February, 1682. And a few years ago, uh, David Adshead identified in the Bodleian Library uh, in Oxford the plans and elevations that formed part of the contract. And they show here um, Monmouth, uh, Monmouth House as it was intended to be built, and as far as we know, as, as it was built. And you can see it was uh, a very large and very impressive house, arguably quite a lot more impressive than Moore Park, um, four stories high with a, a platform and a little cupola on the top where you could get amazing views over the West End in one direction and out over the fields up towards Highgate and Hampstead um, in the other direction. Uh, we also have um, the plans of this house. And uh, this is the ground floor. This is the front door coming in here into a big um, uh, entrance hall which led up to a staircase, again, quite a spectacular staircase, to the first floor. 
And the first floor is extremely um, interesting because at the top of the stairs there was a landing and it led into a huge gallery. Uh, very unusual, with two fireplaces, so a very large reception room. And beyond that, uh, a second very big reception room. And beyond that, a third reception room leading to a back stairs. These weren't bedrooms. These were rooms for entertaining. And one nice feature here is uh, a lavatory, a, a, a public a, a, a loo for people who um, might attend functions in this uh, uh, house. Uh, in these rooms, uh, very lavishly appointed, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, there was a huge use of marble, elaborate plaster ceilings, including, again, their initials in the ceilings, and a wonderful limewood carving um, over the chimney pieces by Grinling, Grinling Gibbons. Now, you see, looking at the plan of this house, you can see that it was specifically ordered to be a place of informal assembly rather than formal ceremony. Socially and functionally, this was the seminal townhouse of the Restoration, the one that epitomised aristocratic fashions in London for, the, for two centuries that followed. Because from the 1680s, the West End of London was being rebuilt by Whig aristocrats. The Bedfords in Russell and Tavistock squares, the Cavendish in Cavendish um, and Manchester squares, the Grosvenor's building in Belgravia. For them, as well as for the Duke of Monmouth, the West End wasn't just a financial investment, it was a social investment and, above all, a political investment. It was the very basis of their lives. The richest aristocrats still maintained three houses, their principal country house, a suburban residence, and a townhouse. But the townhouses were the epicentre of their lives and were, above all, political houses, places for the politics of the day to be thrashed out. In the three successive parliaments which met between 1679 and 1681, where the principal business was uh, the uh, exclusion of the Duke of York, Anthony Ashley Cooper, the first Earl of Salisbury, was the leading opposition figure. Effectively, I think you could say, the leader of the Whig Party. He was... Uh, in an on-and-off alliance with the Duke of Monmouth, who at one stage he had proposed directly to the king as uh, an alternative successor to uh, James, Duke of York. John Dryden's thousand-line poem, Absalom and Achitophel, described the way in which it was believed that Shaftesbury had turned Monmouth's head and make him, and I quote a line from the poem, drunk with honour and debauched with praise, half loath and half consenting to the ill. With a fine country house in Dorset, the Ashley Coopers had been lucky in 1666 as their townhouse in Aldersgate Street in the City of London hadn't been burnt down. In fact, amazingly, 
um, although you can see this in a 19th century engraving here, it survived into the age of photography. Um, and you can see that um, here. Um, it was built in 1644, and it was one of the last generation of aristocratic townhouses to be built in the city. Thanet House, as it was known, was where Shaftesbury um, marshaled his opposition confederates, and Monmouth was a regular visitor here. The City of London was a Whig bastion. The corporation, the mayor, the sheriffs, and all the leading figures in the city were opponents of the Duke of York's succession. Both Shaftesbury and Monmouth wanted to use the city to pressurise the king to agree to their demands. Shaftesbury became a member of the Skinner's Company deliberately to participate in city governments to um, influence their um, policies. Monmouth, meanwhile, took a house in the city, just off Bishopsgate. So here's Bishopsgate, here's the old Gresham College, here's the excise office, and this is Monmouth's house that he took in the city, large house on Bishopsgate. Uh, it was a brand new house, built by the wealthy merchant and MP for Old Serum, Eliab Harvey. Harvey, not surprisingly, was another exclusionist, and he may even have given the house to Monmouth at a discount, because the only purpose for having a house in the city was to give him more leverage with the city corporation, entertaining uh, senior figures um, in the city rather than dragging them over to the West End. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know what this house uh, looks like, although it does appear on this map. The circumstances of the years 1670 to 1685 saw the political establishment fracture into two, disagreeing what to do over the prospect of the Catholic heir. The Tories were based at court, but the Whigs in opposition had no geographical locus after Charles II had dissolved his last parliament in 1681. They were forced to meet in coffee houses, in taverns, in clubs, and crucially, in private houses. Both Shaftesbury's and Monmouth's houses in the city were bases in which to curry flavour with the corporation and secure their support to persuade the king to recall Parliament so they could have another go at exclusion. Meanwhile, Monmouth's houses in Hedge Lane and in King's Square became the centres of opposition in the West End. Monmouth House in particular designed to facilitate large assemblies of Whigs. In this way, the early 1680s prefigured what was to become commonplace in the 18th century when the sons of the Georgian kings were expelled from court and created centres of political opposition in the great mansions of the West End. Leicester House was used by two generations of princes of Wales to oppose their fathers, so much so that opposition to the crown in those years became known as the Leicester House faction. These townhouses were created by the new 
power of Parliament and the necessity for aristocrats and the Crown to influence its composition to support their policies. Great estates in the country were all very well, but without an effective working base in the West End, political ambitions would be stillborn. But to return to the Monmouths. While Monmouth House in King's Square was briefly the first great Whig townhouse and epicentre of the opposition, its moment of glory was very short. In 1685, when the Duke was executed, he left his two major houses incomplete. Neither his house in King's Square nor Moor Park were finished. The Duchess uh, was still staying in Hedge Lane rather than King's Square, and the Duke's execution left an almost impenetrable tangle of legal tenures on his London property. In fact, it was never reoccupied by the Duchess, and she eventually sold it in 1717. Moore Park, however, remained the principal suburban residence of Anne as Duchess of Buccleuch, and she brought the works there to a conclusion. In 1688, she married Charles Cornwallis, third Baron Cornwallis. Um, at this stage, she was still in her mid-30s, and she had three more children with her second husband, all girls. Moore Park was extensively remodelled and extended in the 18th century, and so its final appearance under the Duchess is not clear. And after the death of Cornwallis in 1698, he died quite young actually, she began to think of returning to her native Scotland. And in fact, she made her way north uh, to her Scottish estates in 1701. She hadn't even been to Scotland since 1662, so it was a real homecoming. She was now 54. She lived into her 80s, um, and so she had quite a lot of life left in her. And uh, in Scotland, she carried herself as a member of the royal family, something that was increasingly difficult to do in England. Although her second marriage had been as ruinously expensive as her first, uh, she still remained personally extravagant, and her income was such that she could afford to build herself uh, a magnificent new house. Her family had acquired Dalkeith Castle, just south of Edinburgh, in the 1640s, and she decided to tear this down um, and uh, 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 rebuild it much as she had done at Moor Park. As at Moor Park, the core of the medieval house was going to be kept, but everything you see from the outside would look new. Her architect was uh, James Smith, then the uh, leading uh, uh, architect um, in Scotland and former uh, royal architect to Charles II and uh, James II. Well, Dalkeith Palace, um, as it is uh, known, which you see um, here, uh, um, remains pretty much uh, on the outside as the Duchess would have known it, despite her refacing um, in the 18th century. And it's very likely that its inspiration 
uh, of its design is due to Anne's uh, friendship with Queen Mary II. Uh, Duchess Anne and uh, Princess Mary were brought up together um, in London. They were virtually sisters. And uh, Duchess Anne saw firsthand the rebuilding of Kensington Palace, uh, which you see in my colleague Edward Impey's re uh, reconstruction on the right-hand side here. And uh, Hetlow in Holland, William and Mary's uh, new house, um, uh, which you see on the left-hand side um, here. Both these houses, Hetlow and um, uh, um, Kensington, were built with pavilions attached to a central block, and it seems as if Smith was asked to uh, uh, um, copy this way of building, and Dalkeith is in particular very, very similar in appearance to Hetlow. The fine masonry was executed by Scots masons, but all the internal fittings and all the furniture came uh, mainly from London, with a little bit also coming from the Netherlands. In fact, both uh, Monmouth House and Moor Park were stripped of their panelling, of their fireplaces, and particularly uh, quite a lot of marble, um, and this was all brought up to um, Dalkeith. Um, and you can see here some of the extensive use of marble. There's the house from the outside. And this picture in particular, you can see the panelling. This may well have been brought from either Monmouth House or from Moor Park. And these, uh, this lavish use of marble over the fireplace with the um, Duchess's uh, arms um, over. This, uh, this was no ordinary country house. It was, in fact, a royal palace. And when you look... Um, at the ground floor plan of it, you can see that coming um, into the uh, entrance hall to the staircase uh, on the ground here, floor here, was in fact a, a suite of royal rooms, um, a, a state uh, apartment um, of regal proportions and uh, splendor. I made the point in my first lecture in this series that it was to women that the Berlins owed their wealth. The characters of the early Berlin women are completely anonymous to us today, but we shouldn't doubt their formidable uh, influence on the family. The Cecils were also blessed with remarkable women, one heiress, but crucially Mildred, William Cecil's second wife, who was one of the most brilliant women of her age and who played a a crucial role in partnership with William and in the education of Robert Cecil. And once again, we see in the story of the Monmouths, although the marriage with the Duke wasn't a success in conventional terms, Anne's income and her taste was absolutely crucial to their lives. With the Duke away from home, undertaking his military and other duties, Anne must have supervised much of the building work at Monmouth House and at Moor Park, and her subsequent activities um, at Dalkeith show her in minute control of the design and furnishing of the house. But we don't end with Dalkeith tonight. We end with the important observation that for a couple as wealthy and well-connected as the Monmouths, it was London that was important, not the country. Until rebuilding began at Moor Park in 1679, it was principally important to them 
for supplying hay for their stables and fruit for their table. The life of the Monmouths was urban, and the Duke's engagement in politics made their London residence into the prototype of the political house. That isn't to say that houses of the aristocracy were not uh, um, centres of political discourse before 1670, but afterwards, with organised political opposition to the Crown in Parliament, the political house became central to the mechanics of national power. Monmouth House was the blueprint for those that came after. In my final lecture in this series, we will turn to look at the Marlboroughs, and we will see exactly what became of the political house, both in the town and the country. And I very much hope that you will enjoy me, uh, in, join me on uh, June the 15th for the concluding lecture in my series. Now, I'm hoping by the uh, miracle of um, modern uh, technology that some questions uh, asked by you um, will uh, have appeared on my phone, and indeed they have. And the first question is, why is Hugh May not better known? What an excellent question. Hugh May was the great genius of the Restoration uh, years, um, hugely um, overshadowed um, by Sir Christopher Wren, of course, a, uh, a previous Gresham uh, professor. Many of uh, Hugh May's most important works, including Somerset House um, and Windsor Castle, were destroyed, whilst Wren's works, principally St Paul's Cathedral, uh, Hampton Court, have survived. And um, uh, I think if Hugh May's buildings uh, had survived into the 20th century, he um, would have been better known, and I think Wren would not have been viewed, as he often is, as um, a, a single, lonely, towering genius of 17th century um, architecture. Um, the next question is, how did the Monmouths finance their building works? Um, two sources of income. First of all, uh, extraordinarily lavish money doled out by uh, a, an adoring father, um, uh, Charles II. Um, Monmouth was also granted a number of very important jobs, which came with um, salaries and income. But of course, they were also relying on the Duchess's money from her Scottish estates, that £10,000 a year. So money was pouring in from all um, quarters, but it was pouring out faster um, than it was able to come in. Um, windows at Moor Park resemble the windows at Windsor Castle. Hugh May's signature question mark. Yes, um, uh, Julia, who asked that question, you are um, very uh, observant. I think that uh, the windows at uh, Windsor are very, very distinctive. I think they were a sort of a sort of type of early Gothic revival, actually, the, the windows there. I'm not sure that we know exactly what the windows at Moor Park were like. Um, Paul Drury's reconstruction there is interesting, but I'm not sure what the window form was based on. But unquestionably, um, May uh, did have a very distinctive use of those. Um, Stephen wants to know 
when Shaftesbury's Thanet House was demolished or destroyed. Um, I don't know the exact date, but in the late 19th century, a terrible, terrible loss and tragedy. Um, yes, again, somebody else, Deb, asks, when was it destroyed? I'm sorry, I will um, <clears throat> see if I can answer that question after the lecture. And the last um, question says, that, is there any evidence that the Monmouth's building works took into account Anne's permanent lameness after her hip dislocation in May 1668. This is from Andrew. Yes, so she dislocated her hip, which was a great uh, sadness to her because she loved dancing. Uh, was a great dancer. But I think uh, um, the houses, uh, uh, both in London and at Moor Park, uh, had spectacular staircases. And this, as I said, was uh, very much part of the sort of light motif of Hugh May's architecture. And um, uh, there was no concession, I think, to um, about someone with a bad leg going up and down those stairs. And I suspect she um, must have found it uh, very difficult. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of the questions. Thank you very much for listening to tonight's lecture.